you turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. This time of the year always gives us somewhat of a disjointed preaching schedule, but variety is the spice of life, and so that's just how we'll look at it. 1 Timothy 2. We, it's been a number of weeks since we've been here, so I'm going to read from verse 9 through verse 15, and then we'll consider just a few words. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 9, kind of begins in the middle of a sentence here. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Our year this year is about the pillar and foundation of the truth, that is the church of Jesus Christ. And we're using First Timothy as kind of our bedrock to help us focus on the church. And a number of weeks ago, we began looking more specifically at the godly women of the church in the passage I just read. We introduced the topic in one message, then we spent two messages on the adornment of the godly woman. And we saw both in verse 9 here in this passage, and then we also took an excursion into 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that the godly adornment of a, of a woman is a reflection of the inner qualities that God values. And that external adornment is not to be used to boast of either sexual attractiveness or wealth and prosperity, particularly in the context of the gathered worship of God's people. Hopefully we were very clear that Scripture is not teaching that looking nice is somehow sinful or that the worse you look every day, the more pious you are. That's missing the whole point. What we said, rather, is that external adornment is not to be the defining, attention-getting factor in the woman who claims to be mature in the Lord. And so today I'd like to address the contrast to the woman who is hopelessly trying to demonstrate her sensuality or her wealth, which is indicative generally of a shallowness, a lack of character, maybe even a lost soul, somebody unregenerate in the Lord. Paul gives the most glorious adornment for the godly woman. Verse 9, that women should adorn themselves, verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The adornment of a godly woman is good works. And we saw a few weeks ago that the woman who professes godliness, this isn't just speaking of a woman who says she's a Christian, who claims to know Christ, this is a woman who claims to be an expert in knowing Christ, that she knows and understands what it means to walk with Christ. And we said this isn't boastful, it's not arrogant, it simply means that this is a woman who's walked with the Lord for a very long time. She's been following Christ, she's seen his faithfulness in her life, she's seen his grace and and the fruits of obedience to Christ in her own life. In other words, she can give witness to the joys and to the delights of what it means to be a Christian woman, of following the Lord, submitting to the Lord. And we said that the woman who professes godliness, who lays claim to this expert status as having one who, being one who's followed the Lord, 
if she dresses provocatively or opulently in the setting particularly of corporate worship, this is incongruous. It's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense for one who says she's experienced in following Christ. And so now Paul gives this contrast that the woman who professes godliness, who is an expert in what it means to be a Christian woman, she has a completely different sort of adornment. Good works. Now, I just want to be clear in case anyone misunderstands. We want to be precise. Sometimes we get nervous about the phrase good works, don't we? Even though it's found in the Bible all over the place. We may have this knee-jerk and instinctive reaction because this phrase is often associated with what? With legalism. Sometimes it's associated with a false salvation based on doing good works for God. Well, that can't be what this is talking about. This text already clarifies that the good works are done by a woman who professes godliness, who's already in Christ, already regenerate, already living for the Lord as his humble servant and child. And In fact, Paul is clear in 2 Timothy 1.9 when he says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, it's not going to be really necessary for me to define what we mean by good works. I think as we go, by the time we're done, it'll be very evident. But I can say this. At the core of the idea of good works is the thought of thinking of and serving others. That, that's the core idea of being centered on people other than yourself. And I think you'll see specific examples of this as we go. Now, we only have three words to work with here, with good works, and so this gives us a great opportunity to look at what Scripture says about good works for a godly woman in terms of some purposes of these good works. And so I'd like to give you four purposes of good works for a godly woman, and we'll just use some key words to kind of express those purposes. Here's the first purpose here in our text, and then we'll move on to some other texts. The first purpose we'll call indication indication what do we mean by this the greek word translated good here doesn't refer to things that are outwardly good it refers to things that are sincerely and authentically good they're genuine it specifically refers to that which is internal that which is moral that which is upright that which is good in the heart in other words, their work's done from a heart of love for Christ, a genuine desire to labor for him. Now, why is this important? Well, obviously it's important because it's possible to attempt to do good works as an unsaved person and yet be rejected by Christ at the final judgment, isn't it? We, we're always wary of that. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty what? works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness so what does this mean it means listen carefully works are only good if god considers them good they're only good if god considers them good Uh, the woman who sticks her children in daycare every day so that she can go do some humanitarian good is not doing a good work why because she's ignoring her first call as a mother The woman who speaks openly of the virtues of being a godly wife and yet she's unrepentantly snippy and disrespectful with her husband. She's not doing a good work. Good works mark the life of a Christian woman. It's how she's to be known. They're the adornment of the one who professes godliness. 
What do we mean by godliness? Well, godliness here, when it says those who profess godliness with good works, godliness here speaks of fear of the Lord, a devotion to the Lord, worshiping Christ, honoring Christ, a love for Christ. And the whole point of this text is that the woman who says that she makes a claim to godliness and yet she disregards or disdains what God's word says about her behavior, she's standing on pretty shaky ground. Because you can't claim to love Christ and yet simultaneously contradict God's design for your life. And so godliness, this worship of Christ, this honor of Christ, this love for Christ that stems from an internal reality of faith in Christ. In fact, we give a very brief definition of good works. Good works, very simply, is the observable dimension of genuine faith. Good works is the observable dimension of genuine faith. You know what it means to me when somebody says to me, I'm a Christian? It means you know how to say three words, I'm a Christian. That's not observable. Anybody can say that. As a matter of fact, your good works are the intended goal. They're the intended outcome of regeneration. That's the outcome of faith. Your salvation from grace, your salvation by grace from all of your sins is supposed to result in something. Our classic passage here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you don't have to turn there. You probably have it memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That's salvation by grace. But what's the result? The very next verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You're not a trophy Christian. You are a working Christian. To put it in the negative, a woman who professes faith yet stands against what Scripture says a woman of God is to be about should have no confidence in her salvation. A woman who laughs off the idea of submitting to and honoring her husband should have no confidence in her salvation. A woman who makes her children third, fourth, and fifth place in their life should have no confidence in her salvation. A woman who is above actually doing hard work in the church for the benefit of the whole body should have no confidence in her salvation. And a married woman who doesn't make her husband her absolute top priority as commanded in Scripture should have no confidence in her salvation. Because a woman who is in Christ does what Christ says. It's a very simple concept. But to put it positively, if you as a woman of God, if you're driven to strive for obedience, if, you, if your heart yearns to please God by pleasing your husband, if your children and your grandchildren are your, your mission in life, if you love the church, you love the gospel, you love the ministry, and you do whatever you can, no matter how mundane it is, to further the kingdom of God, if that is your heart of hearts, you know what you have? You have the good works you're performing serving as an indication of the genuineness of your faith. And we take heart from that. So the first purpose of good works we'll call indication. The second purpose, the key word would be qualification. Qualification. Turn over probably just a page in your Bible to 1 Timothy 5. And in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8, we get guidelines as to when the church should financially support a widow in the assembly, in the church, Then there's a clear change of subject, but it's still broadly about widows. And so now what Paul is going to do is he's 
going to give the qualification of a widow who wants to serve in the disciple-making or, or a higher responsible capacity in the church under the authority of the elders. Here are the qualifications. Verse 9 of chapter 5. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having the reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Again, verse 9 says, let a widow be enrolled. This is not speaking of financial support. That topic has already been covered. It's already been dealt with. And certainly, we would never say that a church is not going to support a widow in need simply because she didn't meet certain character qualifications. That would be cruel. No, what we're talking about here are ministry qualifications. Not to have authority over men, but to have greater responsibility in the church as they're now able to completely devote themselves fully to service. Listen, in the church of Jesus Christ, those who are retired, those who are widows or widowers, you are gold in the church. You are the, the, the backbone, the servants. We'll be in First Timothy 5 in a few months, so I won't take a long time here. But just very briefly, what are some of these qualifications? Verse 9, first, she's been the wife of one husband. I means she's proven her faithfulness all the way to the end. Her priorities have been correct. Second qualification, verse 10, she has a reputation for good works. Reputation is a, is a word that means that others bear witness. That if you ask anybody, hey, what about Betty over here? Oh, boy, she's just, she works so hard for the Lord. This isn't a widow who squandered her life in selfish pursuits and is suddenly bored and wants to find her personal meaning in serving in the church. By the way, personal fulfillment is really the last reason you should serve in the church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We're called to be selfless with one another. Philippians 2, right? And if you're serving for personal fulfillment, you're going to be disappointed because leaders forget to thank you. Things don't always go the way you want. You rarely get your way. And a lot of work is unseen and underappreciated. You ever been in a restaurant where there's a tip jar there and just as you're putting a five in it, the person looks away? What do you want to do? Can I have my money back, please? Because you gave it to have a little gratification, right? Admit it. I know you do. We don't work for self-fulfillment. And so the widow is one who is known for having served others. As a third qualification, if she has brought up children. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that a childless woman is somehow unqualified to serve in the church. That's beyond her control. That's God's sovereign. That's God's sovereign territory. And what it does mean is that the widow who has brought up children has the experience, has the battle scars to be a real help to other women. Now, ladies, when you are younger and you have, a, you have four kids all under the age of five and you don't know whether to pray for them or murder them or somewhere in between, having an older woman come alongside you and put her arm around you and say, A, you will make it. B, let me help you not to be uh, so disorganized and be a help. That's so valuable, so helpful. And by the way, as a qualification, you notice that it said, if she brought up children, not that it's just she and her children happened to go to sleep in the same house at night while she was basically uninvolved. She brought them up. There's a fourth qualification, if she has shown hospitality. 
Now, in our culture, when we hear the word hospitality, we think immediately of what? Of having people in our home. That's a small piece of biblical hospitality. New Testament hospitality isn't speaking of having people in your home. It's speaking of how you treat people you don't know, how you treat strangers, how you treat guests, how you treat those who don't know Christ. One of the most shameful things a Christian can do is be rude to an unbeliever. Because we're now not being hospitable. But this woman, if she's hospitable, what it means is that she's inclusive, not exclusive. There's a fifth qualification. If she has washed the feet of the saints. Now, most often when we speak of foot washing, this is for us metaphorical in nature. It is a word picture. Well, it sort of paints a picture of what it means to serve. Paul isn't saying that here. He's not using a metaphor for service. He's literally saying if she's washed people's feet. Because when the church gathered, everyone's feet were dirty. And some of the women would joyfully volunteer to wash the feet of the church members as they came into worship. She wasn't above the lowliest of tasks. There's a sixth qualification. She's cared for the afflicted. She's cared for the afflicted. Generally speaking, the afflicted just means one who suffers. It could be a disease. It could be a situation in life. And in the early church, this would have included caring for the persecuted. Those who have been beaten for their faith or imprisoned for their faith. And what has been her internal heart attitude? What has been her priority? The end of verse 10, she has devoted herself to every good work. She's pursued these works. She's given herself to them. She isn't self-absorbed. There's no reluctance. There's no arm twisting. There's no pleading by the church leadership to please do something. Her work is organic. It's aggressive. It's proactive. I have been so amazed to see this at Grace Bible Church. I am not at the tip of the spear so to speak anymore of the care of our members i find out about it i'm just trying to keep up with what you're doing i find out somebody's been in the hospital they already have eight bouquets of flowers 19 casseroles and 50 of you have been to see them well nobody told me why because you're already doing that work that's glorious it's organic it's it's the way it ought to be now these are the qualifications of a widow in serving in some disciple-making capacity. Why would this be important? Because she can say, hey, what I'm telling you, I've done it. But just because these are the qualifications of a widow serving, this doesn't mean it's not a fine list to strive for now. This is a woman that the church can count on, one who's qualified herself for service. You know, at the beginning of the Great Reformation in the 16th century in Europe, an interesting phenomenon began to happen. It's not written about very much. But as the doctrines of grace, salvation by faith alone is revealed in Scripture alone, began exploding in Protestantism, a new push emerged. It was a push to open schools for girls. And here's why. How are those two things related, the Great Reformation and schools for girls? The Great Reformation happened when Europe was emerging from the Dark Ages, and at this time, most girls, most women were still illiterate. They didn't have access to any education really beyond just how to manage a home at a very basic level. The Catholic religion, which had a stranglehold on Europe, was no help at all. They did not want to educate girls because they might learn to read the Bible for themselves. 
And the Catholic Church very much wanted to have the Bible their domain, not the domain of the people. But now, in the Protestant Church, these new saved families, the average family was trying to bring up their children to know the Word of God, to obey as a result of salvation, and you cannot obey what you cannot read. And so Martin Luther, he asserted that girls' schools were important because this was the means to teach young ladies how to be wives and mothers according to Scripture. John Calvin said that the mother needed biblical wisdom to properly raise her children. And these girls' schools began popping up everywhere in Europe to teach girls reading, writing, arithmetic, Bible knowledge, and even business skills to help their husbands' households as a helpmate, according to the Scripture, to be able to teach their own children and disciple their daughters. And while the Catholic girls were being kept illiterate, the Protestant girls were being educated so that they might be a force for good works in their home, in their church, and in their communities. The first purpose of good works, indication. Second purpose, qualification. There's a third purpose we'll call persuasion. Persuasion. Let's keep going closer to the end of the Bible. The first Timothy, I'm sorry, first Peter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Persuasion. Now, Peter's giving instructions to Christians who are either under persecution or about to enter persecution. And, and very interestingly, his instruction could be summarized in simple terms. And that is, be holy. How do you prepare for persecution, Peter? Be holy. How do you prepare for the, the trial that's coming? Be holy. How do you prepare for the oppression that's coming upon us? Be holy. And he gives practical means to do so all throughout First Peter. In chapter 2, he gives the proper motivation for our conduct and for our good works. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2 with me. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, he's saying, don't be consumed with all the things of the world, which cannot provide any true satisfaction. You're, you're a sojourner. You're in exile. You don't live here. You don't belong here. You're just stuck here for a while. Instead, what do you do? Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In this context, Gentiles speaks of unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this shows a progression. Here's the progression. The lost people are railing against Christians, speaking against you as evildoers. I don't know if you're aware of this, but right now in Edmonton, Alberta, James Coates, Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church, was released from prison. We're thankful for that. And then just last week, the government came, chained up their doors, and put fences all around and put armed guards there to keep the church from meeting. And people have been, who were driving by and, and railing against Christians because the new standard of righteousness has been to protect so-called public health. And it's been an excuse now to shut the church down. Darren was sharing with me just this morning, not only is Grace Life Church still meeting, they're meeting in an undisclosed location with more people than ever before. Now, in front of these fences, Hundreds of other Christians are there protesting and boy, the government bit off more than they knew. And so we're thankful for that. But the fact is, 
One of the great things that Grace Life has done, and Aaron Coates, uh, James's wife, has been at the forefront of this, is to be very clear that we still pray for our government officials, that we still care for them, that we still desire their salvation. Why is that so important? The next part of the progression, they see your good deeds. They see them. That over time, a lost person sees that you are categorically different. You know what many are praying for? Many are praying for that government officials will one day sneak into Grace Life Church not to spy on them, but because they've come to faith in Christ. That will be a great day. And it says here that they may see, that they may be seeing. It's a present active participle. They, they see over and over again that you're consistently living a life of good deeds. And then the end of the progression that for some at least, they, they can't deny any longer that there's some positive thing about your life that has changed and they want it. And what does that do? Of course, that opens the door to the gospel. Listen, an unchanged and selfish life is a useless tool for Christ. This is the life that 1 Corinthians 3 says, yes, you'll still go to heaven but as one naked who comes through a fire. And notice what the unbeliever may do, that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. That when Christ appears, they will glorify God. Now, let's be very clear about this. Does this mean that the lost person has a moment to speak with God and says, hey, you know, I, I didn't ever really believe in you, but I got to hand it to you. Those Christians, they're, they're pretty good people. No, much, much bigger than that. Paul said in Romans 15, 9, the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy. Revelation eleven thirteen in the future, during the end of the great tribulation, the Jews living in Jerusalem will give glory to the God of heaven. Revelation 14, 7 commands, fear God and give him glory. Conversely, Revelation 16, 9 says that the lost will be punished because they did not repent and give glory to God. In other words, in the Bible, to give glory to God is indicative of salvation. And listen carefully, only the saved can give glory to God. Only the saved can. So ladies, what does this mean for you? that the manner of your life, especially as you live counterculture, everything you're doing is against what everything our culture says you ought to be doing. But as you live counterculture, this is a massive and important testimony to the world that when you speak with a gentle and quiet spirit instead of with the aggressive spirit that the world values, that when you truly serve and love your husband instead of making demands and crying out about all your rights, which the world values, that when you devote the most energetic years of your life to raising your children that God gave you, instead of devaluing the family, which is what the world wants you to do, and when you do the most menial tasks in service to others in the church of Jesus Christ, instead of constantly pursuing self-gratification and self-actualization, which the world values, now you are a force for the gospel. You know, a question I get often from young moms is, I want to be a force for Christ. I want, to, I want to share the gospel with the world, but I have four children and they're all little and I'm, if I'm not changing the diaper, I'm feeding one of them and desperately trying to get one of them to go to sleep. What is that doing? You're living a life that the world sees. Yeah, it may be in the church the job of men to teach men, but it's the job of women to raise men. And you are having a massive, massive impact simply by being unlike the world around you. Recently, our family was on a walk on a nice trail. 
kind of out in the country. And coming down the trail opposite us was a woman walking clearly with purpose, unlike us who were just strolling around. And she was listening to something on her phone. She didn't have earbuds. She didn't have headphones. So I knew we were about to be treated to whatever she was listening to. And as she walked by us, we could hear the voice of some slick motivational guru telling her how empowered and how important and how valuable she is. Something like, yes, you matter. In fact, you can do anything. You are significant. You are the most important person in your life. You can make your dreams come true. There were more yous than on a sheep farm. It was just all about you, 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 you. It was like getting splashed in the face with selfish water. And we were all enjoying ourselves and then that walked by and we're like, well, we need to pray for forgiveness now because that was depressing. How sad it was that she was desperately searching for significance based on what some self-proclaimed Maharishi or sage was telling her on an audiobook. Paul urged two women in the Philippian church who weren't getting along, Euodia and Syntyche, to get their act together. And his reasoning was very simple. Philippians 4.3, Paul said, They have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These misbehaving women had gotten off track, and now they weren't any longer a force for the church of Jesus Christ. They were a distraction. And how sad it would have been if unbelievers had observed their bickering and fighting. Instead of getting on track for the gospel, Instead, you let your life reflect what the Bible says a woman of God is to do and you will be a witness. You may not ever in your mind do anything great in this life, ladies. But I guarantee you, God is a God of his word and appearing before God one day will be a person who says, I give glory to you, O God, because you saved me from my sins and you sent this woman across my path who lived so differently that it showed me that Christ saved sinners like me. Be persuasive. Indication, qualification, persuasion. I'll give you one more purpose. We'll call this gratification. Gratification, the real kind. Radical feminism has successfully convinced our culture that the life of serving others, such as your husband or your children or your church, is a wasted life. And instead, you should be serving yourself, doing what pleases yourself. This sense of dissatisfaction stems from the idol of self-fulfillment because you'll never finish feeding that monster. Of finding a life that feels fulfilled based on achieving whatever the world says you're supposed to achieve. This includes the eternal godless battle for self-esteem, to feel good about yourself, which is essentially a form of pride and selfishness. But as a holy woman of God who serves the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a God-ordained pathway to true gratification. And it basically comes in two steps. The first step is the pursuit of humble labors. That's what we've been talking about, the pursuit of humble labors. This doesn't just mean serving at home. It means serving in the church. It also includes those tender and difficult spots in your own sanctification as you're trying to become more like Christ, taking aim at those areas of sin and praying about them, studying scripture about them. If a sharp tongue is your weakness, then aggressively pursue the Lord in prayer. Listen to sermons, memorize some key verses. 
If fear and anxiety are your weaknesses, then aggressively pursue targeting this with truth. If perfectionism is your weakness, and not only you, but everyone around you has to try to live up to your impossible standards, then pursue finding contentment in the Lord. If suffering in some way is your lot in life right now, then aggressively pursue living in a way that the Lord is pleased with how you are suffering instead of exclusively focusing on solving the problem. And in the midst of all this, this is why 1 Peter is such a great example that in the midst of suffering, what do you do? Be holy. Pursue humble labors. And the second step isn't so much of a step as it is just a result. We'll call this one the praise of a lifetime reputation. The praise of a lifetime reputation. If you will cultivate the continual habit of humble labors, then the natural outcome will be a holy and God-ordained satisfaction, gratification at the deepest level possible. Not because you're constantly trying to convince yourself that you're okay, but because you found your identity in Christ and enjoying the fruit of obedience that will follow you and bless you. Proverbs thirty-one, thirty-one: Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works, what? Praise her in the gates, meaning the place where everybody talks, that your works have praised you when other people aren't around. One of the most influential and important early church fathers was Tertullian. Tertullian was born just 50 years after the Apostle John died. So he was right on the heels of the Apostle. Tertullian was from Carthage in the Roman province of northern Africa in Tunisia. He was a prolific Christian author. He was a theologian. He was a defender of the Christian faith. Tertullian has, has given us so much. He's given us part of our theological vocabulary. He's the one who coined the term Trinity to speak of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as a three-in-one God. And interestingly, Tertullian, he gives us a glimpse into the ministries of women in the church in the early second century when persecution was still rampant. Now, one thing you had to know about Tertullian was that he was married to the love of his life. He adored her, and he was adamantly against remarriage after death, especially for his wife. And he would tell her, look, I am all you need. And if I go home early, you'll be fine without me. But one day he wrote her a letter. And he said, but if you do remarry, should I go home first? Don't marry an unbeliever. You know what his reasoning was? He said an unbeliever would never let her do all the work she had been doing. Listen to his letter. Who would be willing to let his wife go through one street after another to the poor cottages in order to visit the brethren? Who would like to see her being taken from his side by some duty of attending a nocturnal gathering? At Easter time, who will quietly tolerate her absence all the night? Who will unsuspiciously let her go to the Lord's Supper, that feast upon which they heap such calumnies, I mean slander or insults? Who will let her creep into jail to kiss the martyr's chains or bring water for the saint's feet? 
In other words, his wife was engaged in visiting the saints, especially those in need, going to evening Bible studies, attending an all-evening gathering on Resurrection Sunday, attending regular worship services with the Lord's table, which was slandered by the Romans as some sort of weird cannibalistic feast, going to jails to visit Christians in prison for their faith, and washing the feet of the believers at church. And this was the wife of the greatest theologian of the day. What an example. Ladies, aspire to that. Aspire to be Mrs. Tertullian and be known by your good works. I want to let Luke, the writer of Acts, have our final word today. You can just listen. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Question, ladies, would your life be worth resurrecting? God thought hers was. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. Here it is. And many believed in the Lord because of her work. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a glorious start to the Lord's day today. May the word of God sink deeply its truths into our hearts. May it be impressed upon our minds. May it make its way into our feet and where we go into our hands and what we do, to our tongue, what we say, to our ears, what we take in, to our eyes, what we would look at. May you live through all of us. And Lord, of course, everyone here knows this message isn't just for women, it's for all of us. May we be characterized by good works. May we live lives that would have been worthy of resurrection. We thank you for the grace of God, which is not by works, There is not a single good work we could have done to have earned salvation that is purely your gift. Our response to your grace is to do that which is good. And I pray that would characterize our lives. And may every person here not only stand before you justified someday, but stand before you ready to receive a reward for the countless good works that were done in this life. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.